Hello and welcome to Science, a Candle in the Dark. This is our monthly conversation about the wonders of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. As we welcome you back to the show, uh, let's note that this is the holiday season, of course, here in North America, and we have Thanksgiving this week. So many of you are likely contemplating your menu for the upcoming feast. And among your holiday hall of vegetables and perhaps your holiday decorations, you are likely to find some gourds and squashes sitting on your kitchen counter or scattered about the house. What you may not know is how these tough and tasty and pretty vegetables represent a story of extinction and survival that is tied to the human story in the new world. Gourds may have gone extinct entirely if they had not been found by humans, according to a new paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last month by Logan Kistler and colleagues from uh, Penn State University. Squashes, pumpkins and gourds belong to the genus Cucurbita, which is native to North America. And they were domesticated on several occasions throughout the Americas, beginning around 10,000 years ago. The wild forms of these species are unpalatably bitter to humans and other living mammals. But their seeds are often found in mastodon dung deposits, which suggests that they may have been dispersed by large herbivores who were not as sensitive to the bitter taste as the s their smaller mam mammalian cousins are. The hard seeds of the cucurbita also suggest that they evolved to survive passage through the gut of large herbivores, which then dispersed the seeds widely across the landscape through their dung. On the flip side, however, the cucurbita may have been poorly adapted to a landscape lacking these large dispersal partners, which happened when the mastodons and other mega herbivores went extinct. Many of the cucurbita followed suit, but a few found an unlikely savior in a new, smaller mammal with more varied tastes, humans. This new bipedal mammal, who may have even played a small part in driving the mega herbivores extinct, also happened to pick up some gourds, at first as vessels and later as food. And thus the squashes and gourds became important in, in Native American culture and cuisine and eventually became part of the more modern American tradition of Thanksgiving. So as you give thanks this week and perhaps dig into a stuffed squash, think about how that squash might also want to give thanks to our predecessors on this continent for saving them from the brink of extinction after we may have killed off their mega herbivore partners. Which brings us to the broader picture of extinction and our role in bringing about a new spasm of mega extinction that now threatens most species on Earth. Our guest today spends much of his time observing and reporting on some of this ex ongoing extinction crisis, even as, it, as we try to find ways to stem the flow of species going over the brink. And he also happens to study another species from closer to where we are in the southwest uh, of southwestern US, which also had an interesting tie with a mega herbivore, and we'll hear about that from uh, Chris Clark, our guest today. Hello, Chris. Hello, Maru. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, just to introduce you, Chris Clark is a, is a writer, a prolific writer, and environmental editor for KCET Television at Los Angeles, where he covers California's environment and wildlife. He's a prolific writer and spends much of his time writing about environmental issues in California for a variety of publications and blogs. You can find his latest reporting at kcet.org. He has a particular fondness for the Mojave Desert, where he now lives outside Joshua Tree National Park. He's the author of one book, uh, Walking with Zeke, 
which is a moving account of exploring nature with his beloved dog Zeke, which he wrote while mourning the, the, this dog's pa passing. Chris has also been at work on a book about Joshua trees, which is the focus of his upcoming Cafe Scientifique talk, uh, when he'll be in Fresno in a couple of weeks. So welcome again to Candle in the Dark, Chris. And uh, my pleasure. <laughs> And uh, I think you pretty much covered everything in that bio. I'm not <laughs> okay. sure what I have left to talk about. Well, uh, you have much to tell us about Joshua trees. Let's start with that because you, you said there's an interesting connection between mega herbivores and Joshua trees as well, which is somewhat different story from the the squashes and pumpkins. But uh, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's actually a story that is uh, that is thought to be true of a whole lot of very familiar plants, yeah. uh, not just squashes and vegetables. So. Um, another another food item. People are probably not going to be sitting down to a meal of Joshua tree plant parts at you know this this week as they <laughs> celebrate the holiday in whatever fashion they're used to. But there's at least one other form of food that we count on that may well have have a similar evolutionary tale to tell. That is uh, avocados, which many many people that have looked at their their evolution thinks that they may well have also had similar uh, similar relationships with large herbivores and the same kind of benefit from dispersal and seed coat scarification, you know, or seed coat treatment through acids. It's just it's a fascinating thing uh, that affects a number of plants that we we are uh, many of us are very familiar with, and Joshua trees are thought to be one of them. Uh, as it turns out, Joshua trees as fundamental to the character of the Mojave Desert as they are and as familiar as they are to anyone that has spent time in the Mojave mm -hmm. or listened to, you know, certain popular <laughs> Music, rock and roll yeah. uh, albums from the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, science doesn't know a whole lot about Joshua Trees. There's only a few researchers that have been studying them to any great degree. And one of the things that scientists have found out is rather sobering for prospects of the tree's survival in the next two or three hundred years. And that is a very similar story to the one you started us off with today, in that Joshua tree fruit do not fall off the trees readily, okay. even when they're very, very ripe. And the seed do not come out of the fruit readily, even okay. when the seeds are very much ready to germinate. And what that means is that there's, there must have been some way in which uh, those seeds got out of the fruit and into places that were suitable for germination yeah. in order for the trees so, to have survived. So can, can you describe the fruit a bit more for people who may not have be familiar with them? What do they sure. look like? Sure. Well, the, um, Joshua trees are what uh, gardeners might call a rosette succulents, sort of like echeverias or agaves or things like that, that you might mm -hmm. be fairly familiar from uh, from gardens in Fresno and yeah, elsewhere in the yeah. Central Valley. Yeah. Uh, Joshua trees aren't often thought of as a succulent because their leaves are smaller and they're a little bit flatter, but they are, in fact, succulent. And, and unusually for succulents, they actually grow tall as trees. Yeah, they're arborescent. Mm -hmm. uh, a, uh, a pedant in biological terminology would insist on calling them coalescent, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 
Joshua Tree's flower from a bud in the center of the rosette, which is at the end of each branch. And uh, flowers come out, they're pollinated in a unique symbiotic relationship with yucca moths that we'll talk a little bit more about because that's really important to the tree's survival. But then uh, these huge, uh, probably a foot and a half long panicles of white flowers, when they're fertilized, when they're pollinated, they produce little seed pods that are probably golf ball sized. Okay. And in each of those seed pods, there are five rows of little black seeds about the size of a a small person's fingernail. Okay. Those seeds uh, stay in the fruit until they are removed by something else. And uh, they germinate fairly readily, but they don't live for very long in typical desert conditions. It's It's a rare... Uh, spring that will provide the kinds of conditions that Joshua trees really need to survive the first past the first few weeks after germination. Cooler, wetter springs than we're used to is what Joshua trees really need. Hmm. And they also need shelter from from predators. It may sound a little odd to yeah. talk about predators when you're a plant, but you know rabbits are predators on yep. plants, and especially young you know, plants, it, I guess. Yeah. Unless the seed is lucky enough to have landed in a place where rabbits don't find it, uh, most of them don't survive their first year. So it's it's very, very difficult for a seed that is grown successfully by a Joshua tree to actually make it off the tree, out of the, uh, out of the fruit, and into the ground in a place where it will survive to say, 10 or 15 or 20 years old, where it can start to think about flowering and <laughs> you know, yeah. reproducing reproducing new Joshua trees. Yeah. That's so, the situation as it stands now. So, the, uh, But the rabbits are not the ones that get the seeds out of the fruit? Uh, no, or there isn't really much uh, in the way of uh, nutrient in the fruit. Mm-hmm. At, at present, the primary animal that gets fruit gets the seeds out of the Joshua tree fruit in a way that they could be uh, um, put in places where they can germinate and survive to adulthood or or reproductive maturity are a little rodent called the desert wood rat. Okay. And uh, they do actually collect the fruit. They pull the seeds out and they eat them. They forget some of them. They cache piles of the seeds outside of the fruit. They move them back and forth from cached to new cash, and uh, so they do effectively disperse seeds for some distance. But the problem with desert wood rats uh, as seed dispersers is that they don't travel very far. You know, they uh, they have lifetime ranges that are 100 feet across, and so they're pretty good at making new Joshua trees in places where Joshua trees already are. Hmm. But as far as long-range dispersal of seeds goes uh pack rats just aren't really up to the task so uh, pack rats are what we find now but but in the in the the revolutionary history was there another species that was perhaps a better disperser well in fact there was up until about nine or eight thousand years ago in the mojave desert 
a species of mammal called the giant ground sloth. The uh, the Shasta giant ground sloth, wow. uh, to be precise, was one of a number of different species of giant ground sloth that wandered the landscapes of North America. Yeah. The Shasta giant ground sloth was about the size of a cow and covered with uh, shaggy fur, as far as we can tell, and had an interesting uh, set of defenses from the predators that it encountered in its daily life, which included saber-toothed cats yeah, American lions and things mm-hmm. like that. Things that we might find now in, in the tar pits in, uh, down in Hollywood, right? Exactly right. <laughs> uh, those defenses uh, included a series of bony bumps in the skin of their backs, which are probably fairly effective deterrents to, uh, to ambush attacks. You don't want to break a tooth on one of those. Yeah. And they also had, and this is more important for the purposes of thinking about Joshua trees, they also had very long claws that they generally used just for walking on, mm-hmm. but they'd be a fairly formidable uh, defensive tool, you know, if, yeah. uh, if the sloth got on its back and was, you know, clawing at the uh, at the belly of the animal that was trying to eat it, yeah, it could probably like, a serious open. amount of yeah. damage. Uh-huh. Where that's relevant for Joshua trees is that those claws would have been pretty effective at safely pulling branches of Joshua trees down Hmm. to the point where the sloth could take a whole cluster of ripe seed, ripe fruit, Uh, and and just sort of scoop the whole thing into its mouth. Yeah. And that, uh, that image, that concept, makes that characteristic of Joshua tree fruit that seems like a disadvantage. Yeah. It would explain how it used to be an advantage. Hmm. Because right now it seems like a disadvantage that the Joshua tree doesn't let its seeds just sort of disperse willy-nilly like dandelions and fly around on the wind. Yeah. But it actually may have been that it was very important for those seeds to stay in the fruit uh, so that they would be there when the ground slow showed up. Oh. And the uh, the ground sloth would suck a whole mess of fruit into its mouth, probably swallow without chewing, and then walk fairly slowly. I mean, they're sloths. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but walk five miles or maybe even ten miles before depositing the seed in a nice little moistened, scarified, fertilized packet. And uh, just imagine having several of these per 10 square miles going through and gleaning the fruit off of all of the Joshua trees and, you know, wandering around. Eventually, a certain amount of Joshua trees are going to find uh, find themselves in places where they could germinate successfully and, and uh, live through the first few years. The climate was much more suitable for Joshua trees' germination and survival in those years. Mm. The desert was a lot cooler, a lot moister. Yeah. And it's thought that that process might explain why we see Joshua trees pretty much all over the Mojave and in altitudes that they can survive in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, considering that they don't disperse their seeds well, yeah. the question is, if there wasn't something else doing the work of dispersing the seeds, how did they get where they are? Yeah. It's yeah. thought by a lot of scientists, not all of them, and okay. we can talk about that if you like, but <laughs> by a lot of scientists that 
this loaf might actually be that animal that did that work. So what uh, what evidence do we have that the sloths did that? I mean, you know, with the squashes, we, we find the seeds in the mastodon dung. Do we have something like that for the sloths? In fact, we do. There are caves in the desert, uh, some famous ones in the vicinity of the Grand Canyon, that ground sloths used as as habitat. They used as you know sleeping quarters or protection from the elements. And being mammals, they tended to fill those caves up with dung. Mm. And uh, being mammals that were not humans with brooms and shovels, they didn't clean that dung up and move it somewhere else. So if you have a really good cave that the sloths really liked, you tended to build up layers and layers and layers of slope dung. And so that's a um, mm. where that still exists in the desert southwest. It's a real paleontological uh, treasure house yeah. of uh, you know a database of what sloth ate in the area back then. And Joshua tree fruit have been found in a lot of different places where there is sloth dung. Yeah, only only a paleontologist would love dung piles as databases and treasure treasure trolls, right? Well, the, <laughs> the, the uh, so, desert wood rat or pack yeah. rat provides yeah. another example of that. Yeah. It's uh, also made a, a very important database of paleontological uh, uh, uh-huh. specimens in, throughout the desert, and they're all sealed uh, sealed against the elements and decay by a thorough coating of rat urine. Yeah. And so, you know, it speaks highly for those people that decide to become paleontologists <laughs> and go through grad school sorting out things from slope dung and rat urine. Yeah. Sort of uh, heroic. Yeah, it is heroic. Uh, I just want to quickly remind our listeners that uh, we are listening to uh, Science, A Candle in the Dark on KFCF, and uh, I'm talking with uh, Chris Clark, and we're discussing Joshua trees and dung piles and fossilized urine. (laughs) That seems like par for the course for a science show. So... (laughs) Uh, at least I was going to say you were talking about how paleontologists treasure these things, and at least paleontologists don't have to deal with uh, fresh dung, which many of my biologist friends deal with as well. So it, at least you don't have to deal with the the smell. That is very <laughs> true. So you were you were talking about uh, another interesting connection, and and you know this Joshua trees are fascinating because I'm always fascinated by the evolution of these coevolutionary interactions between different species, especially plants and animals, that come to become dependent on each other. You know, we talked about sloths being important for the, potentially for the dispersal of Joshua trees. And then you mentioned uh, uh, yucca moths Mm -hmm. as a key pollinator for Joshua trees. So what's, what can you tell, uh, tell us about that? Well, it's, uh, this is something that is true of all species of yucca, as far as we know, and there are quite a few different kinds of yuccas, mm-hmm. it's one of the first examples of an obligate mutualism, a symbiosis that uh, was ever described, as far as I know, uh, dating back to the late 19th century and the botanist Charles Valentine Riley at the Missouri Botanic Garden, yeah. writing about the relationship of yuccas and yucca moths. And mm-hmm. Joshua trees, being yuccas, have the same relationship. And basically what it is is that uh, Joshua trees don't get pollinated by any other pollinator. Uh, yucca moths of 
a couple different species do different populations of, of Joshua trees. They'll uh, gather, the females will, having mated with the males, uh, that then go off to be eaten by lizards or, or whatever, uh, the females will gather pollen from Joshua tree flowers and carry it around from flower to flower and pack a little bit of that collected pollen into the ovary of one flower after another. Okay. And subsequent to that, after they do that, they will lay one or two seed eggs in each ovary. Okay. And then they fly off. After a couple of days, they uh, they go off to you know join their uh, their male mates in the great moth afterlife. <laughs> uh, we then zoom forward a, a few weeks and we see that the uh, flowers that have been fertilized that have been pollinated by the moths, the ovaries are swelling in, as the seeds inside develop yeah. inside the fruit. And inside those fruit, I mentioned that there are five rows of seeds yeah. in each fruit. One or two of those rows will have a tiny little moth larva, a little caterpillar, uh, that is starting to eat its way through the rows of seeds. Wow, okay. And so that's uh, kind of the that's kind of the the price that the plant play, pays the moth for the services. Exactly right. And this is a this is a finely negotiated balance. If mm -hmm. uh, the moth doesn't fertilize the plant, it doesn't produce seeds. If the uh, if the moth lays too many eggs in the in the seed, if it lays three or four or even five eggs, the tree knows to just shed that fruit. Okay. Uh, hmm. So one or two, the tree can handle that. More than that, the tree says it's not worth its time to develop that fruit. Oh, okay. And so after several months, uh, the emerging larva uh, has eaten an entire row of seeds that comes out of the fruit, drops down to the ground uh, from the fruit, which can be a considerable height, uh, you know, 19, yeah. 20 feet sometimes, yeah. burrows into the ground and pupates. Uh, sometimes, apparently, although this is another area that we don't know much about, uh, pupates in a state called diapause for sometimes decades. For decades? Wow. Yeah. And nobody really knows how far the moths like to uh, like to bury themselves, how deep they like to bury themselves. Uh, in the lab, if uh, emerging Joshua Tree moths larvae are given the option to bury themselves in a container of soil. They always go to the bottom, apparently. Hmm. And there they wait. You know, this is the same same life stage as a chrysalis with a monarch butterfly. It's just that intermediate stage between larvae and adult that moths and butterflies have. And instead of hanging on a tree or a milkweed plant or something like that, uh, yucca moths, uh, uh, diapause state is underground. They emerge when they are ready to uh, become adults, and again, nobody knows what stimulates that. You know, whether it's time, climate, uh, some chemical signal from the tree that it's ready to flower. Nobody knows. Mm. Uh, but they emerge, and the males mate with the females, and the females work on the flowers, and the cycle perpetuates. Huh. And uh, this is a particular species that's uniquely evolved with Joshua trees? 
There are two species of Joshua tree uh, yeah. yucca moths, uh, one for a population that is in the west uh, near Los Angeles and the other for the smaller trees that live closer to the Colorado River in Utah and parts of uh, Nevada and Arizona. Hmm. And this is, uh, this is actually an important, uh, an important part of the Joshua Tree story. You started off by saying that uh, gourds and squashes and pumpkins and things like that were rescued by people, mm-hmm. uh, either deliberately or inadvertently. Some uh, of them. Some them. of them, yeah. Right. And uh, there are some folks that are talking about the fact that we may need to do that with the Joshua tree now that the ground slope is no longer around mm-hmm. because the Joshua tree's habitat is getting warmer. Yeah. And Joshua trees like a cooler, moister desert, and that cooler, moister desert is retreating northward as the, as the planet warms. And you can, in fact see mature Joshua trees that people have dug up and transplanted in places as far north as Fallon, Nevada. Yeah. But in order to have a healthy population of Joshua trees as opposed to individual Joshua trees, you need to have the moths. Yes. Because in order for those trees to reproduce, they need the moths. They're tied reproductively Mm -hmm. to those moths. And nobody knows how to transport the moths. Nobody knows how far the moths will travel uh, in the course of their adult phase, which is, you know, maybe three or four days. Hmm. Uh, when there was a sloth moving seeds around, it apparently uh, there were enough Joshua trees around that if a moth moved 200 yards north, it would find new Joshua trees. And we can't count on that now. We don't know how to ensure that there is genetic connectivity between generations of moths as we move wow. Joshua trees northward. And so it makes it, everything a whole lot more complicated. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I'm looking at the clock here, and I think I'd love to, looking forward to hearing more about this and how this, this limited science we have on the species informs how we manage them for the future. Uh, when you come back, you come to Fresno in a couple of weeks to talk at the Cafe Scientifique. But before I let you go, is there is there any other... California wildlife environmental story that you want to share or, or that you're chasing? Well, I certainly, I certainly hope that listeners that want to hear more about Josh the Trees and the Moths will, uh, will come yeah. uh, in a couple of weeks and uh, say hello. Uh, there's just there's so many things going on in California. California <laughs> is a center of biodiversity for so many different kinds of plants and animals and other other topics. And I'm just uh, I would encourage people to. Uh, well, check out KCET.org for a lot of current reporting on everything from condors to uh, to uh, the crab fishery to uh, you know endangered species throughout the uh, throughout the state. I'd say one big issue right now that is going to just keep getting bigger is the issue of uh, anticoagulant rodenticides, rat poisons, yeah. in wildlife. That's statewide and it's affecting both the rare and common. Uh, species, everything from the Pacific Fisher, which is far rarer than it should be, to bobcats and mountain lions and, and things like that, coyotes. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, that's a huge issue. There's there's just a lot of different things going on, and uh, an informed citizenry is always uh, more able to 
contend with these issues in a more intelligent fashion. So I uh, thank you for the work that you're doing to yeah th- to spread that information. And thank you, thank you for you know uh, volunteering to come to Fresno for the show, and uh, I look forward to having you here uh, on December seventh. That's when our next Cafe Scientifique airs. So uh, thank you, Chris, uh, and uh, we'll wrap up today's show uh, with a reminder that uh, we'll be back again on Tuesday, December 22nd. And you can find out more about uh, the the cafe and uh, announcements for upcoming events on our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, The show is produced by me and uh, Vic Bedoyan usually, and the theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. Our engineer today is Dennis Thompson. And uh, let me leave you with a reminder that uh, until next month, remember that science is a verb. So have fun contemplating these relationships between plants and animals as we go through the holiday season. And I hope to see you at Peeves Pub on December 7th.